Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Welcome to another edition of More Than Money. I'm Dave Popowich. Rob Geary is joining me today. Faisal's still away, uh, but I think he'll be back next week. It'll be good to see him. Uh, we've got an interesting uh, an interesting show today. You know, Rob, many of our, well, many of us, everyone's going to say clients, mm-hmm. but many of us uh, as a, in, in the population, we're aging. And as we age, you know, the one thing that becomes more and more important is uh, access to health care. And of course, we've seen that over the last two to two and a half years with the global pandemic. But even in the absence of the pandemic, as we get older, things change, right? Physically, things change. And it means we need good access to health care to have the best quality of care and quality of life that uh, that we can have. So we've got a terrific guest today to talk about, um, you know, some of the areas where changes could be made mm-hmm. to the healthcare system in Canada. There's lots of great models out there. We've talked, you know, Faisal and I have done shows on this over the years. Um, you know, what can we incorporate and what changes can and should we be making now? Yeah, hybrid models too, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. And then we're going to, we'll continue with healthcare uh, a little bit today and talk about, you know, active living. More and more as we have conversations with people, clients, um, a big part of what their experience is going to be in retirement requires that they um, they do things that, you know, are, are active. Mm-hmm. And so staying in health, joint health, all those types of things, what can you be doing? A lot of people think that they should wait until retirement to get, you know, into shape. Yeah. Can't do that, right? It's got to be part of your lifestyle right from the beginning. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about markets this week. Um, you know, it's always an interesting week in trading. Um, you're, let me just start by throwing it to you and, and your thoughts, sort of your observations on what you were watching and, you know, relative to the kind of cli- uh, conversation you have with the clients. Well, I mean, we still have a lot of volatility, right? Yeah. That's the problem. It's, it's, you know, we had a good, we had one good week, right? Gave some optimism. Yep. Now we have more data coming in, going, are we pausing again? What are we doing? How long out are we looking for? And what are we actually digesting day to day in the market is mm. the big question, right? So that's a good point because I was, you know, I was reading with some interest on Friday, the um, U.S. employment report. Um, and, it, you know, a bit like the inflation data in this respect is depending, depending on what lens you read that data with, there were facts in there to support um, both sides of the argument, one side being that the Fed has to get more aggressive mm-hmm. in, uh, in terms of taming inflation with their rate increases, uh, and the other, hmm, maybe uh, wage inflation, and the, uh, uh, sorry, not just wage inflation, but the pressure is coming out of the system, right, yeah. that it may have peaked. And so, you know, we, we saw, again, a lot, of, uh, a lot of, as you said, volatility around that number. But this is, I think it's, it's a little bit of the situation that we're going to have to live with until a trend starts to present itself, right? Right. So if you looked at that headline data, and you and I were talking about this before the show, more jobs being created in the U.S. than expected. And you go, okay, let me get this straight. So we have more jobs being created, Mm. more people are working. Hmm. There's job openings so that any American, and Canadian as well, that wants a job. Can have one. Can have a job. Right, wage inflation in Canada not like in the United States. We'll get back to that, but wage inflation remaining flat or actually coming down. And in the U.S., what was interesting is the unemployment rate stayed the same. So that means the participation rate, the number of people looking for jobs and seeking jobs, actually went out and got jobs. So 
you know, it's, it's a bit of the, is the good news bad news, right? How, do, how does an inflation, or sorry, how does a, a, a recession present itself in an environment where everybody who wants to work can get a job? Yeah. Well, and, and <laughs> it's, it's an interesting dilemma for the Fed. Right. Too. Yep. Right? And this is, this is what the market is going to, and investors are going to be debating, um, you know, for the next several months is, if, if the Fed's job, Fed has a dual mandate, Bank of Canada has a single mandate. Bank of Canada's inflation, and the, the Fed has two, inflation and jobs. Jobs are clearly strong, mm-hmm. right? So inflation is really their primary focus. Um, the market is, is speculating uh, back and forth on any given day about whether or not the Fed is going to uh, disregard a rollover in the economy and jobs starting to, to try to tame inflation. And Nobody knows the answer to that question. Probably not even the Fed at this particular point, mm-hmm. right? They'll follow the data. But you made a, you made a good point too that the Fed is it's not just the numbers that they're right. using, right, as a signal here, right? right? It's that forward commentary on what we think is going to happen, which is the issue. Hundred percent. So if if the Fed has to break inflation, what does that mean? Well, breaking inflation means you got to you got to dislodge the expectation of inflation in people's minds. So people like you and me, if we think, huh, things, uh, you know, I want to buy something. That thing's going to cost me 10% more next year. We'll buy it today. Yeah. Right? Um, and so this is, that, this is how inflation perpetuates itself. It builds on, each, uh, on itself. Well, if I can jam a wedge in there to try to break that, then, uh, then we, can, uh, we can dislodge that expectation. That's what the Fed really wants to do, to, to your point. They've got a number of ways that they can, they can do that. And it's all on the demand side. They can't do anything about the supply side, right? Yeah. So one of the things they can do is raise rates and remove liquidity, which they're doing. The other thing they can do is, is talk tough. And you and I were talking about uh, Lael Brennard, who is a real dovish member of the Fed for a long time, how she's flipped. Yeah. She's now on the other side. You know, it's sort of guns a-blazing. We got to keep going, keep going, keep going. And when you and I were talking, you know, we were, we were both kind of thinking about that one and saying, well, you know, moral suasion is one of the ways the Fed can drive a wedge and dislocate that expectation of inflation, right? By creating uncertainty in your mind and my mind about, huh, maybe things are going to get worse here. Maybe the economy, we've got to slow the economy. That could affect my job at some point. Maybe I need to pull back. Right. And that's a demand side story too, yeah. right? So there's a whole bunch of moving pieces going on right now. Well, they can use that as the plus rather than a supersized rate hike. They would spook right. investors' right. market. And again, we you know we're 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 speculating here on all of these things. What we're not speculating about what what has to happen, right? Yeah. We we know that the Fed needs to dislodge that expectation of inflation. How they do it and how we as consumers respond. That's you yeah. know that's what the data will tell us over the coming months. And and until we see that, I think a clear trend. We got we got volatility and, and, and <clears throat> timeline on that <clears throat> trend is that what we're hearing is late somewhere into the fall here, right? September is kind of the word that we're hearing on how much data we need to digest over the next couple months yeah. to pot potentially pause. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. So I I think the market is comfortable with the fact that the Fed is going to raise fifty basis points mm-hmm. June and July, right? Clearly, we're going to get some more of this data, jobs, inflation data, wage uh, data, so on and so forth, uh, over the course of that period of time. The question will be, what? how many data points make a trend? 
right? So if we get, well, you know, this one's a little bit lower, this one's a little bit high, no trend, no trend, no trend, we're going to have this continued volatility, right? So, uh, yeah, the next, anyways, brace, I think, as investors, we need to brace, yeah. depending on what the headline is on any given day. You know, I noted uh, on Friday as well, not only did that, that jobs data come out, but at the same time, you get word from, uh, say, Elon Musk to an internal memo to Tesla employees that we got to stop hiring. In fact, we got to get rid of 10% of the workforce. Yeah. Right now, on the one hand, you say, well, okay, that's going to take pressure. I mean, now the employment situation softening. Those people, that's a signal to, to, to get a little bit more conservative as a consumer. You might be losing your job, at least at Tesla. Um, but on the other hand, you're thinking, oh, is that an economic problem, right? Is this recession? And so, boy, it's a, it's oh. a delicate dance <laughs> that's taking place today. It is. And we talked about before on should you go and get a job right now if... Right. You've retired. Right. Well, this is part of the question. So when it, when it feeds, like conversations that you and I have been having, people are wondering, because markets are down, ooh, is this going to blow up my retirement? Yeah. And therefore, should I go get a job? Right? And I find it interesting. And, and there's a saying, it goes something like this. You say, you know, we're all long-term investors uh, a day at a time. Right. Right? And, it's a, and if I extend that to retirement, right, we've got a long-term retirement one day at a time. Now, on the one hand, yes, you want to live day by day, but on the other hand, should you really be influenced by the market volatility about whether or not you should do whatever it is you want to do? Right. And the answer is you shouldn't, right? Just like when we talk about investment strategy over a long period of time, there's going to be ups and downs and you've got to average something. It's the average that becomes important for retirement, isn't it? Well, it'd be a stressful I don't. I don't think we plan to retire and look for a job every time the market takes a dip. And will it again? Right? You and I were talking about. Is this the last time the market would ever dip? No, nope. it won't. Right? It goes in cycles. It goes yeah. up and down. So the the emotional anxiety that people feel when when we get that um, is understandable, of course. Uh, but it's people getting caught up in this in this long term plan experiencing on a day-to-day basis and those two things can be can can really disconnect you from um, you know from what truly will happen over time and it can draw it can lead to bad decision making too yeah uh, Dave Popovich here today Faisal uh, is away and Rob has stepped out for this particular session we've got you know an aging population we talked about this at the top of the show Rob and I did and um, as we age, forget about the pandemic for a minute, the population ages, what becomes more and more important to us is access to health care and the quality of care and the quality of life uh, that we, we experience as we move into and through uh, retirement and as we age through that period. And there's lots of frustrations that we've experienced, again, probably more acutely during the pandemic, but we want to sort of break it apart and see, uh, take, a, take a close look at the health care system and then how the health care system supports like where the strengths are and where some of the weaknesses or areas of opportunity to improve are. Now, I'm not a medical expert, so we've got a terrific guest joining us to help us understand some of the complexity of this. So Dr. Robert Bell is a professor emeritus, Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto, former Deputy Minister of Health for Ontario, and the former CEO of the University Health Network. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got a big topic to try to tackle, and I hope I did it justice in terms of the introduction there, but you and some colleagues had collaborated on an article um, that was published that I read with some interest, and um, I'm going to start maybe from a general perspective, if we can, and just talk a little bit about your perception of the state of affairs of the uh, of the Canadian healthcare system, and 
I understand the pandemic has probably identified some areas where there were some acute problems or perhaps raised some issues. Um, and you can certainly are free to speak to that. But I'd like to just get your sense of, of where we are uh, nationally um, and, 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 of course, provincially. I mean, we have obviously uh, provincial budgets uh, control these things. But your sense of where we are right now. Well, Dave, I think any conversation after the last uh, two and a half years has to be focused on Canadian perceptions of our system that have developed during this pandemic. Uh, and, you know, there, there's good and there's bad. I mean, I think when we look around the Western world and we compare mortality in Canada to the United States and to most of Western Europe, uh, we're pleased that, thank goodness, fewer people have died in Canada per capita than in many of the wealthy parts of the world. But we can also see real problems that have occurred. And perhaps you talked about an aging population in your introduction, and certainly in central Canada, especially in Ontario and Quebec. One of the big concerns has been the terrible, tragic outcomes that have occurred in our long-term care nursing homes, uh, where COVID literally ran rampant through overcrowded old facilities that didn't have enough staff to begin with and immediately found themselves short staffed because of people getting sick and requiring isolation. And the remarkable thing that I think struck Canadians during the pandemic was a higher proportion of mortality in this country occurred in nursing homes than in any other country in the world. So close on 80% of death occurred in our nursing homes during various stages of the pandemic. And I think that was a surprise. It was a wake-up call to Canadians. So when myself and my authors thought about the series of articles that we wrote in the Globe and Mail, I think we thought about lessons learned during the pandemic, but also general perceptions that have been growing for years about issues that occur in the Canadian health system, predominantly related to two, two things. And the first was access. You mentioned that, whether it's getting to see your family doctor when you need to see your family doctor, whether it's getting referred to a specialist, it's getting into a surgical suite to have an operation that's going to allow you to live a better life, getting help for mental health care for you, for your family, getting access to medications for some Canadians who don't have the good fortune of having a drug plan. Getting access is one of the key issues that is a concern for Canadians across the country. And of course, the other thing is seniors, because our population of people over the age of 75 is growing at 4% per year. And this is an economic threat to our healthcare system, but it's also, we learned through the pandemic, just a risk in general for people who are aging, what kind of care are they gonna receive? Yeah, Bob, you know, one of the things, and it's a bit of a taboo topic, but you guys, uh, when, you, when you authored this article as a group, you addressed this notion of, um, you know, our, our publicly funded system versus perhaps a two-tier adding some private funding. And there's, uh, you know, the U.S. mostly private. You've got Australia with a pretty clear distinction between public-private. Um, the conclusion of the article was, uh, was that the publicly funded system is better. And I'm just going to throw that ball to you, and, and maybe you can walk through us what, the, what your research indicated and your conclusion on that. 
Well, you know, our view is clearly that Canadians can afford publicly funded health care, that there are many things that we can do that would make our health care system better, make access faster, and make our system more cost effective. And we would lose some of those advantages if we were to accept a separate portion of the system that was developed for profit for medically necessary care. There are many things in our system that are for profit today. Pharmacies, where we purchase our medications, are obviously for profit organizations. We're not saying that some publicly funded care should not be offered by for profit organizations. But physician services, services that occur in hospital, we think the lessons learned from places like Australia that you mentioned. I'm an orthopedic surgeon by background, and I know that the experience for Australians is dramatically different. If you have for-profit care that you pay for yourself, or you have publicly funded care, and guess what? Those places providing for-profit care don't provide everything. They only provide the fast, profitable aspects of treatment. They cream the milk to take those services that they can provide at a profit. If you're sick, if you need ICU care, if you need emergent care, they don't want to look after you. They send you to our public, their public hospitals. So why would we allow organizations to take money out of our systems? Our hospitals, our physicians across this country are extremely expert at providing care. We need to give them the tools they need to make our system faster, better, and more cost effective. Yeah, and I noted in the again in the article, I, I think it was compared against the United States on a on a per person or per cost basis, what healthcare costs Canada versus the average Canadian versus uh, versus U.S. It was a significantly different, uh, you know, it was over double. I think what the U.S. cost was relative to the Canadian cost, and I got to tell you, I was a bit surprised when I read that. Yeah, much higher in the United States than it is in Canada. Now, you know, Australia actually spends less than we do, and it has issues related to tax points that I won't bore you with tax advantages that they offer for private insurance being purchased. But, you know, the Canadian health system is already very efficient, um, especially when you look at the publicly funded part of our health system, and certainly introducing for-profit operators of medically necessary care, it's gonna introduce an extra cost of profit. And my view is if there's extra money being provided to the system, why not put it into our very efficient hospital system, for example, if we're gonna provide more surgeries, as we've suggested in our article in community surgery centers, let those be managed by the hospital sector for them to move as many people into those community surgery centers where care can be provided faster and less expensively than to give those centers to a private operator who will pick and choose what cases they do there based not on patient need, but rather based on profit. We've got about a minute left, Bob, and, and one of the threats I think that's arisen as a result of the pandemic um, is, is burnout in you know, in the medical community. I've got lots of friends that work there. It was a tough two and a half, three year slug, um, as we know. And I think there's plenty of evidence suggesting that people now are, are at that point burning out and perhaps going to be leaving 
in, you know, the industry in the next few years. Your thoughts on what that represents uh, as a risk to our to our system? Yeah, I think you know two things. First of all, all the people that have worked in healthcare—physicians, nurses, personal support workers, or nurses' aides, as they're sometimes called—everyone has suffered during this pandemic, both from their own personal risk and from the extra time they've needed to spend at work. I think we need to think about the capacity of human resources in our health system. Any kind of approach to improving the health system needs to look at the people who work there, recognize that they're the major asset the system has. Uh, we finished with a good sort of review of, of uh, some of the strengths and weaknesses and of, of the Canadian healthcare system in general. I'd like to maybe just start this section with a focus on seniors. And um, maybe you can just address for me what you think the biggest uh, issues, concerns, uh, healthcare concerns will be uh, for seniors as, this, as, as we age as Canadians? Yeah, Dave, thanks. I mean, we start off with a premise that never before in Canadian history have so many people have been aging. And, you know, the fastest growing demographic group in Canada is people over the age of 100. Isn't that extraordinary, you know? Um, and we also have to remember that people are healthier much longer. So, you know, this concept that Canadians are living longer uh, that's always posed as a threat to the success of our healthcare system. Well, they're living longer, but they're also spending more of that time healthy, not requiring care. But let's face it, eventually people will start to become frail. And the biggest concern that strikes people is they may even become demented. They may start to lose their cognitive abilities and how we care for people who are approaching frailty, who are losing cognitive strength, is an important part of planning the challenge of the healthcare services that we need for the future. You know, the one thing that the pandemic emphasized is something that I've known for a long time, formerly as deputy minister, and that is if you ask seniors how they want to live their last years of life, the one thing you hear is they want to be as independent as possible and they want to live in their own home. They don't want to be in someone else's home. They don't want to have to go into a nursing home. And that's something, especially after the pandemic, especially with the stories coming out of central Canada in Ontario and Quebec, of people literally being captive in their homes for months at a time because of the pandemic. Well, it's just increased that sense that people have. They want to stay in their home. So if we're thinking about a national senior strategy, and I'd really, I really refer your listeners to the National Institute of Aging, which is an organization at Ryerson. They can find it on the website. You may want to post the website for the National Institute of Aging on your website, Dave, has developed the concept of a national senior strategy that needs to start with the resources that people need to have to stay in their own homes. And that starts off with home care, with, you know, as they become more frail, as they need help in maintaining their hygiene, ensuring that their medications are being taken properly, ensuring that they're eating properly. We need people coming into seniors' homes to help them stay independent. And that concept of home care is something that has not been part of our Canada Health Act. It's not something that we focused on as part of medically necessary care. And that needs to change across the country. 
We need better ways of providing home care. One of the interesting things that we've noticed here in Toronto is the concept of vertical aging that people are following. And this is something that's happened spontaneously, but researchers in Toronto have noticed that an increasing number of high-rise apartment buildings are being occupied, whether they're low-income Toronto community housing or whether they're high-income Bay Street and waterfront condominiums are being occupied by seniors. People who have downsized from their homes, you know, they've sold their homes or they've moved from single family homes into apartments because they didn't want to use the stairs. They no longer could get down to the basement safely and they've moved into apartment buildings. And, you know, there are over 500 apartment buildings in Ontario or in Toronto alone that have over 30% seniors living in them. This offers us a tremendous opportunity to refocus the way we provide seniors with independence by saying we can provide home care a lot more efficiently if we're thinking about the needs of people living in one building as opposed to thinking about people scattered across the map. This is something that's called naturally occurring retirement communities or NORCs. And, you know, we think, and you, we've written about this in the Globe and Mail, that this is something the governments need to recognize as a huge opportunity for providing services that keep seniors independent faster, better, and more cost effectively. We think it's a real trend. Yeah, that makes, uh, that makes a lot of good sense. Now, you've cited, uh, as I recall, Ontario and Quebec did have a heck of a problem with that seniors community in the, in the long-term retirement care. I don't think it was quite as bad out west. And maybe, and are, are you seeing, so when we talk nationally, do you see the same problems, Bob, nationally across the, the whole country? I'm sure probably directionally you do, but are there any differences out west versus what, um, you know, what we're seeing out east? Well, the advantage that Alberta and British Columbia had, Saskatchewan, during the course of the pandemic was your long-term care nursing homes were more modern. They were built earlier. The ones in Quebec and Ontario were started to be built in the 70s. So, you know, they were 50 years old and the model then had more than two people in a single room. So as you might imagine, Dave, when COVID-19 arrived in those homes, it just ran rampant because people were breathing the same air. Whereas the modern designs that were used in Alberta, BC, simply because they were more modern facilities built later because of your different demographic in terms of aging, uh, provided people with more protection against airborne spread of the virus. The healthcare system, Bob, is a big beast, right? We know provincially, federally, trying to get everybody to work together. It's just a big beast. What changes, like what has to happen for some of these changes to take place? I mean, the population, as you said, is rapidly aging. Are we going to be able to, on a provincial and national basis, keep up with those changes and implement some of these these things that you're talking about in time? Well, you know, these things are not rocket science that we've suggested. You know, there's a huge waiting list for surgery, for example, Dave, resulting from the pandemic. Well, we know from experience in Canada and around the rest of the world that if you actually move surgeries out of hospital into dedicated surgery facilities in the community, that you can do 30% more care per day for the same amount of time in the operating room. I mean, that's not a tough one. There's all kinds of real estate available, commercial real estate available, where we could be 
building cost-effective community surgery centers. The Jimmy Patterson Center in British Columbia has demonstrated this. In Alberta, people are moving to community surgery centers. I disagree with the concept of them being for-profit, but certainly this move will improve the efficiency and cost of providing surgery. You know, moving patients to a specialist. Well, most of this is done by fax today across the country, which is amazing. It's the only thing that happens by fax in Canada today is getting your consultation request to a specialist. Well, you know, that can be done readily by something called e-referral that sends your referral by a background algorithm to the appropriate specialist that has the shortest waiting time. Faster, better, cheaper also providing us with information about where the backlogs are in the system that we don't simply have today. There are a bunch of straightforward, simple things that we've described in this series of articles in the Globe and Mail that can make our system more responsive to the needs of Canadians and also reduce the burden on the taxpayer. I think everything that, that I've read in those articles, everything you said today makes a lot of sense. The question is, are you seeing any evidence that these things, that, that we are starting to adopt some of these, you know, even the simplest approach is to try to improve the efficiency of the system and get better access, in your opinion. Are we seeing any of that movement? Yeah, it's happening, but it's happening slowly. And our hope was by putting these articles out there and by having conversations with folks like yourself, was we would, you know, say to Canadians, look, there's stuff that can be done, people. There's stuff that can be done that makes our system faster, better, more cost-effective, smarter. Um, why aren't you asking your politicians, asking your healthcare administrators, you know, ask them, why aren't we doing e-referral now? Why is the facts still king in referring me to a specialist? Doesn't make sense, it needs to be changed. Well, listen, Bob, I think you and your colleagues have done a, a great service. Thanks for your advocacy in this area. I encourage all of our uh, listeners and viewers to contact their MPs. This is, again, there's a lot of ideas. We've talked over the years about things. Too many committees get formed. We need to get action on some of these things, right? And even if it's the smallest things, make some progress. Thank you to, uh, to you for joining me, to the whole group that participated in putting these, uh, these articles together. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Been joined by Dr. Robert Bell, who's a professor emeritus, Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto. Former Deputy Minister of the uh, of Health for Ontario and the former CEO of the University of Health Network. You know, we've done a lot of talk in a little uh, about the healthcare system itself and the healthcare system in place to make sure we have access, as Bob said, to um, to the resources, the skills, the surgeries, whatever we need to maintain our quality of care. But there's a preventative aspect of this too, and you know, most people want to age in place and 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 stay mobile and so on and so forth. And we got to talk about that because as we get older, it gets a little harder to do that. It takes it. You, you've got to actively um, make that happen uh, to prevent, uh, you know, illness and uh, mobility issues for as long as you possibly can. Now we have a terrific guest to help us understand the relationship between how to do that and both the physical and the social slash mental aspects of this. We have Megan McDonough, who is a professor at the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary. Megan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Okay, so uh, as you gathered from that that um, that little bit of upfront, we have talked about the Canadian healthcare system, and it's there to help us when when we have a particular problem. But we all also share a responsibility uh, in our own healthcare by being active and staying engaged and socially and mentally and all of these different things. And and I think this is where your expertise comes in. And I'd like to get 
your take. I'm just going to throw it uh, throw it to you, and I, I I'd like to get your take on the aspect of of the connection between physical mobility and maintaining that, and uh, and the social and mental aspects connecting those two things together. Right. So maintaining physical activity and staying active is something that helps us like continue to be able to do that throughout our lives. So one of the things, you know, a lot, like you said, a lot of people are quite interested in like maintaining independence is one of the top issues um, that older adults identify as important to them. And so physical activity is a way that we can do that. And there's a lot of different things that you can do that encompass physical activity, everything from walking to, you know, some people have a favorite sport or classes or things they do, but it can be formal or informal. Um, but movement helps us ma- maintain those physical abilities and maintain that independence. So it is really important um, to do that as we age. Something else that we're really interested in in my work is that physical activity in many cases is also a social setting. So, you know, clearly, of course, you could go for a walk on your own, but a lot of the activities we do um, are either with other people or even that walk might be around other people or a way that we see other people or run into other people um, throughout our day. And so we're really interested in how physical activity also can help us maintain those social connections, which are really important for our mental health. Um, and, and, you know, for they can be important also as sort of building and maintaining support resources, like basically maintaining your social network or increasing your social network. So you have other people in your life who you can call on that c- can help you or even just are, are people who sort of bolster your mood um, or people you can interact with and participate with um, in so promoting mental health. So it can be important in a variety of different ways. So at the pandemic, I think, is has certainly pointed that out to many. I, I mean, I have a mother in a long-term care facility now, she suffers from dementia, and I think the only thing I can say good about dementia is the fact that she didn't suffer the cumulative effect day after day of social isolationism when they were all quarantined and locked in. Um, but that's a bit of a sad statement because I, I think we all uh, collectively, globally, experienced this idea of sometimes we, you know, we, were, we were locked in, you weren't getting the physical, and that bleeds into the, into the social and the mental aspect of not being able to see and interact with people. Um, your your thoughts and takeaway from well actually let me let me throw this to you. I talk to a lot of people about uh, about uh, being active. Uh, when people retire, they say, well, you know, I want to be active and I want to travel and I want to do all these things, but they're not necessarily active now, right? So your thoughts uh, comments on this idea of living a life that is not active pre retirement and then thinking that you're going to move into an active retirement, uh, you know, active lifestyle in retirement. To me, I don't see that happen a lot, right? Lifestyle is lifestyle, and people need to start early on this idea, in my opinion, uh, in order to maintain that through, you know, through their their later years. Your thoughts? Yeah. So there's sort of two sides to this. So on one on one hand, like you are right that if you um, if you start early or maintain an active lifestyle, you know, earlier in your life, you are more likely to live an active lifestyle later in your life. Like there's an association there. There's also the flip side, though, because uh, like I think there's a lot of hope in this, too, because we know like lots of people are not currently active. But it's important to understand that the physical benefits of physical activity are available to you and you can, you know, increase fitness, you can, you know, sort of improve in, in being able to create those habits at any point in your life. Like even if you aren't active now, if you start being active, those are those benefits are available to you. 
um, you know, certainly for, for anybody at any stage, making those first steps can be a bit challenging. So it can be helpful to have supports around you to be able to do that. Um, but when you take those first steps, that that is still possible, even like quite late in life. So that's important that people know, too, that it's not hopeless. <laughs> yeah, it's not hopeless. You're right. That's a good point. Thank you for clarifying that. What tips do you have? I mean, I go back to the pandemic. Lots of people perhaps uh, quit. We're out of the routine, whatever the case may be. So if you're in that situation or if you're just starting new, it can be intimidating. Like you said, it can be a bit scary to get going. Give us a couple of tips from, a, you know, from your perspective of how to start. Yeah. So a couple of, of broad things, first of all, is to start where you're at. So all of us might be at different places in terms of our current fitness or knowledge of different activities or things that are available to us. And I think an important thing is knowing and understanding that moving is good for us in any amount. So um, there are public health recommendations for minimum amounts of physical activity that are recommended to maintain sort of optimal health benefits. And I know that those are important. Like those are, if you meet those targets, um, that is good for your health. But I know some people are also intimidated by those because they seem kind of far off from where they're currently at. And I think it's all equally important that we know that even if you aren't, for example, you know, if, if you aren't going out for as, as long of a bout as might be recommended or getting your total minutes or at the intensity that is recommended, if you start where you are at right now, you do get benefits from all of the movement you do. And doing that movement gradually builds your fitness. And over time, you might be able to move towards meeting those recommendations. And even in the meantime, you're getting those be- you're getting benefits along the way. So I think that's a really important message for reducing the intimidation factor. And then a second, a second point is that um, we're more likely to do and maintain doing the things that we enjoy. So if there's an activity that you feel more comfortable with that you enjoy doing, um, certainly if there's an activity you like to do with other people, that's a big factor that can help you sustain that activity that cho- choose those activities. Cause you're more likely to do them. Um, you know, sometimes people envision things like, you know, running for a long period of time on a treadmill and they just can't see themselves doing that. Well then maybe don't choose that. Maybe that's not, not the thing that you want to do. So, um, I think those are important. And then also, having supports around you. So having, like I mentioned, other people you can do the activity with that can make it more enjoyable and also sort of create a um, a little bit more uh, motivation to, you know, sometimes it's hard to get out the door for that walk if it's not perfect weather or something like that. But you know, you're meeting someone, so you make that extra effort. So it can help in that way. Um, but also just being around other people makes it, makes you see see sort of those examples and role models of other people who are doing it. Um, you get those positive mental health benefits from being with other people in addition to being active. So those can really boost our motivation. Megan, thank you very much. We've got to wrap it up there. I appreciate your input time and the motivation to get going on this stuff. Great. Well, thanks for your interest. We've been joined by Megan McDonough, uh, professor of faculty kinesiology at the University of Calgary. Listen, join us for our next seminar. Uh, We're going to have to put all this stuff together. Make sure your health, mental health, physical health, and financial health all work for your retirement. That's going to be on Tuesday, June 21st, 7 o'clock. 
To register, go to morethanmoneyradio.com. All right, thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to speaking with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodcundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodcundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodcundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. A subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.